All right, a couple of announcements that I'm aware of this uh, this evening. First of all, remind everybody that the uh, Chafer Conference is going to be um, on March the 4th, 5th, and 6th. It's going to start a little bit afternoon on um, um, Monday the 4th and go through the evening session on the uh, 6th of March. And that is going to be a, a crucial and important uh, session for a number of different reasons. And I think one of them is, as I've talked about before, is just dealing with the whole issue of the philosophy of ministry. But the keynote speaker, Scott Annual, is a, uh, as I've said before, is a professor of uh, music at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And I think he's going to have a lot to say that's going to be very informative and educational for a lot of people. And then there are going to be a number of other presentations on different topics. So we also need help with a number of different things. And so if you need to uh, sign up for that, uh, you can. Uh, there'll be some sign-up sheets and some uh, uh, different people to talk to, and I'll make those announcements later on. The other thing, just as a sort of a public information uh, topic, is that um, this Saturday they're going to have a uh, <clears throat> national uh uh, gun Appreciation Day. There's a website on this, and, and right now the Second Amendment is under tremendous assault for a number of reasons. I've been doing a lot of research on this recently because there's just a lot of misinformation that is floating around. And some people may say, well, what does that have to do with the church? And we have to remember that what secured our First Amendment religious liberties was the Second Amendment, was men and women, families who are willing to make the ultimate sacrifice armed to protect and preserve and to establish the freedoms of this of this nation. And I think as a student of history that if the Second Amendment goes, the first is not far behind. And I think that's extremely important. And the first, Second Amendment is predicated upon the, the belief of the right of the individual to self-defense. And this is has its grounding in the Torah, in the Old Testament, and it's established all the way through the Scripture. So I think this is something important. Second thing is this is a little bit different from some of the other things that go on in our culture where people want to go out and march on this or demonstrate on that. What they're trying to do is change something. What we're trying to do is support what's here. That's very different. We're going out to celebrate and support what the Constitution has. We're not trying to change anything. And that is a vital distinction that I don't hear anybody bringing out. This is not activism. This is support for what we have and what we've had for over 200 years and to say that this is the law of the land and we support it uh, fully and completely. And there's a lot of different things going on. Um, and whether you are a gun enthusiast or a hunter or any of those things is not the point. It, as I've been reading a lot of different uh, things on the Internet and a lot of different blogs and comments from people, I've been pleased to see a number of people comment that they don't, ha- they don't have a gun, they've never owned a gun, they've never shot a gun, but they recognize that the Second Amendment is really what supports and it keeps us free and it backs up all the other amendments. And so for that reason, and I think also in a lot of these things, there's an education element there that there is a lot of propaganda from both sides 
but there's a lot of disinformation and misinformation and you know massaged information uh, on both sides and you need to be educated and understand what the uh, what the issues are so some of the things that are going on there's going to be um, some sort of activity in DC I think uh, uh, Jeff may be going out to that so you can talk to him about that and then the rest is just go shoot a gun this weekend go to a gun show go to uh, there's going to be a gun show at Reliant this weekend go to a, uh, go to a gun store uh, something to support, show our support for our uh, heritage and the legal foundation, one of the, uh, the legal foundation of our nation, which is the Constitution. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer at the beginning to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to study under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for all the many ways in which you have provided blessings for us, both materially and logistically, but above all spiritually, all that we have in Christ. And that is because of all that we have in Christ that we are able to uh, live above and beyond the uh, circumstances of our lives and that we're able to focus on the big plan, the major picture, and see what is being accomplished in history by your grace. Father, we're thankful that you've given us your word, and your word is the absolute final authority, and that we have the opportunity to study it in freedom in this nation, and we pray that those freedoms might continue, recognizing that it is not our government that gives those freedoms. You are the one who established those freedoms, and we are thankful that we have had a form of government that has recognized those freedoms uh, for the last 200-plus years. Father, we pray that that will continue and that you will prevent those who would seek to limit and restrain those freedoms uh, from being able to accomplish their purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 13. Now, it's been, I think, almost a month since we've been in Acts because of uh, Christmas was on a Tuesday. We didn't have class that night, uh, New Year's. We had a, uh, I was out of town and we had a, uh, Jude video, and then uh, that was the threat of inclement weather last week. So we're starting now in Acts 13. The last lesson was sort of a survey overview of the last part of the book because this is a transition into the third major division of the book. We've looked at the expansion, the establishment of the church in Jerusalem in the first part, then the expansion into Judea and Samaria in the second part, and now to the uttermost part of the 
earth. This is uh, based on what the Lord Jesus Christ stated in Acts 1.8, that the disciples were to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came, which occurred about, about 10 days later, and then they were to, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So this is where we see the expansion of the church, and there are a lot of different doctrines that we're going to cover as we go through this, and one we're going to focus on this evening because it comes up in the first um, two verses, and it's one that shows up several times throughout Acts, and I'm, I've sort of touched on this a few times, but I've never done a full-bore study of it, and that is on the doctrine of fasting and prayer. And one of the reasons I'm taking some time to do this is that this has become a very popular uh, idea in modern quasi-mystical evangelicalism. And you may not realize it, but in modern evangelicalism, there has been a mystical wind blowing, and it is growing stronger, and this has been the case for uh, several decades. There's always been a... Uh, a trend of mysticism, a uh, sort of a thin uh, veneer of mysticism in a lot of uh, a lot of evangelicalism, but it has become uh, very pronounced and it 's promoted by many different uh, for- formerly well respected uh, theologians in just the last last ten years. Uh, you have numerous uh, examples of seminary students and professors who have made uh, formal shifts away from beliefs that they held uh, regarding uh, the the Scripture alone or as the uh, Reformation emphasized it, sola scriptura, that that the Bible alone is our authority to add uh, tradition or to add some sort of mystical insight. Just a few years ago, Francis Beckwith, who who is still a professor at um, uh, Baylor, in the uh, religion department at Baylor. At the time, he was the president of the Evangelical Theological Society, one of the most prestigious positions in in academia in the evangelical world. And he stunned and shocked the evangelical community when he resigned his position. Well, first he wasn't going to resign his position, but he went back. He had been raised Roman Catholic and had... uh, converted to biblical Christianity as a teenager, and he went back and went through confession and mass at a Roman Catholic church in, uh, in Waco, Texas. And hit, But that's not an isolated instance. Some years ago, when I first moved up to Connecticut in 98, I was looking around to see if there were any seminaries in the area where I might take some courses just uh, to learn a few new things. And the closest seminary was one called Gordon-Conwell Seminary in uh, northeast Boston, so that was pretty far away. But I went up there and did some research on the Internet and ran across an article talking about the fact that Gordon-Conwell, and I do not believe it's unique to Gordon-Conwell, was suffering an epidemic among their alumni. And over the past 20 years, they had had about 5 to 10%, I don't remember the exact numbers now, of their alumni convert to Roman Catholicism. And then there's another example of Francis Schaeffer, who was one of the foremost defenders of evangelical Christianity, uh, who died in the early 80s. His son, 
Frankie converted to Greek Orthodoxy, which is extremely mystical, in the early 80s. Now I don't know where Frankie is. He's somewhere off the agnostic cliff. And uh, I've heard interviews with him a couple of times, and he shows the most egregious disrespect for his parents and for the heritage that they gave him. Uh, But that's not uncommon. I know of a number of others who have left solid biblical backgrounds and gone either into Roman Catholicism or into Greek Orthodoxy, both of which are heavily mystical. In the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic theology was was incredibly mystical. That people were seeing visions and uh, receiving revelation, and you have mystics such as St. John of the Cross and uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, and uh, and many others, and these suddenly these writings and these books by these authors began to make appearances in Bible bookstores, Protestant Bible bookstores in the late 80s, and they have become extremely popular and touted by numerous Protestant writers and theologians over the last uh, 10 or 20 years. And one of the elements within this is their view of, and I'm saying it a precise way, not fasting per se, but their view of fasting, which has a heavy mystical element to it. And what I mean by that is their view of fasting is that it is something that is done that that makes you more spiritual, makes you closer to God. It does something to you, but then it also motivates God to answer prayer. And I've seen uh, things going from what may be classified as the sublime to the ridiculous. And the ridiculous would be, uh, I've heard, I've been in churches, I've sat up on the platforms in churches where they've announced a fast for the coming week, and it would be a partial fast where, okay, you're not going to eat something this week. You're not going to have caffeine this week. You're not going to, um, have, have and just, that that's not what a fast is. And in reading that I have done about fasting uh, over the years, the one thing that I've, that's always impressed me, and I think that's because I've got a little bit of a background as a hunter and someone who knows how to um, take an animal, slaughter an animal, skin an animal, butcher an animal, process it all the way down till it's just ground meat and sausage and steaks in the freezer. And that takes a lot of time. It, it takes an, an hour or two. And in the ancient world, in the biblical world, you didn't have the ready-made foods that you have in a modern culture. And so to prepare a meal took a lot of time. You didn't have food processors and blenders and any kind of electrical tools. Uh, many times you didn't have the, the sharpest uh, knives, and you had to resharpen your knives continuously to keep the blade sharp and all of these things. So Eating was something that consumed a lot of time, and that's a factor in uh, what we see in why people fasted. It is because something so overwhelming, so serious, so tragic has taken place that they just don't have time to eat, to go through all of the food preparation and all the things involved, so they're giving all of their attention to the crisis at hand and not wasting time eating. I never hear anybody bring that point out, but I think it's a very significant point because today 
you can take time out from almost any crisis to put something in the microwave and hit it for a minute, and you're done eating within two minutes, and you've had a meal. And, um, and Or you can go to the grocery store and get all kinds of prepared foods very rapidly so it doesn't detract from uh, or take a lot of time away from a, from a serious situation. So I think these are important factors for understanding the significance of, um, of fasting. So that's the main thing we're going to look at this evening. But let's start with the first verse. We're told now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. So we're introduced to the leadership that is functioning in the church at Antioch. They're named Barnabas, uh, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod uh, the Tetrarch, and Saul. That would be Saul of Tarsus, still going by the name Saul and not by <coughs> the name uh, Paul yet. The date of Acts chapter 13 is in 48 A.D. This takes place in roughly the spring of 48 and extends to the uh, uh, the fall of 49, the events that are covered over the next uh, uh, <coughs> chapter, uh, through the whole whole of chapter uh, chapter 13. So this is 15 years after the establishment of the church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. There has been a tremendous growth that has taken place. There has been, uh, it's about... Um, Four years or so after the events in, described in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. And so now we see a, a large, well-established, well-organized congregation uh, located in Antioch. And I thought I would give you a picture here. This is the big picture of, uh, of Antioch. We see it uh, located uh, on the uh, north east corner of the uh, Mediterranean Sea, and it is was about 25 miles or so inland. So it's a port city, it's a major trade, trade route, and it is a significant, uh, significant city. It was also known as Antioch on the Orontes, or Antioch of Syria, because there were 16 other cities that were named Antioch, and this was... Uh, the foremost among those uh, 17 cities. It was founded around 300 B.C. by Seleucus I Nicator, who was one of uh, four generals uh, that received a division of the Greek Empire at the death of Alexander the Great. So Lysimachus got part of Greece, and Seleucus got this, er- got this area, uh, the Ptolemies down in... Um, in Egypt were three of the four, and so this is a was a significant area, and the city was named for his son Antiochus. It um, it's located on a fertile plain on the river that gives it a uh, somewhat flat area, so it's a good area for a city to be uh, to be built. It has access to the major trade routes going to what is now Turkey or going at that time to the area that was uh, uh, known by various names because there were various regions there, Galatia, Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, Asia, all of those were different uh, 
areas or regions within Turkey. It was about 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea, and so I said 25 earlier, it was about 26 uh, kilometers, about 15 miles from the uh, Mediterranean, which gave it access to, uh, had a port, and then it had uh, access going north up through the uh, the Taurus uh, Mountains, which uh, where trade goods would be taken into into the interior. It had a population of about a half a million, and it had a culture that was as decadent as any other culture in the Greco-Roman Empire. On the one hand, you had a, a promotion of uh, fertility religions and the promotion of all sorts of uh, sexual rights related to the worship in those fertility religions. There were uh, extremely violent sports spectacles in the um, in the Colosseum, and uh, but there was also a very large Jewish community there that built a solid business and trade community, and they uh, flourished there. Many of them came up from uh, Judea at different times when there were famines and other things that that took place down there, and many of the Christians that lived in Judea and around Jerusalem when persecution broke out, left there and moved north to Antioch. So there was a large Jewish community as well as a thriving Christian community that was a subset of the Jewish community because at this time there's not a division between Jew and Christian. The Christians were just viewed as a sect of Judaism. And so they they didn't have this division that comes along about a hundred years uh, about a hundred years later. Antioch is the first place we're told where the believers in Jesus Christ are called Christians in Acts eleven twenty six. In Acts six, we're told that Nicholas, one of those six that were chosen or seven that were chosen there in Acts six five, was a proselyte from Antioch. We're also told that the Antioch church grew large enough to give very generous financial aid to their fellow believers in Jerusalem when a famine broke out. Later on, uh, this church became one of the largest and most influential churches in early Christianity. It started off being the home base for the Apostle Paul and his missionary activity on the first trip with Barnabas and then the uh, next uh, a couple of trips. Uh, later, by the end of the second century and into the third century, it became one of five major centers or bishoprics for uh, the, in the early church. You had uh, Antioch and then Jerusalem. Ju- I have no idea what that is. Wait a minute. Somebody's trying to invade my computer. That was a new warning system, new computer, new warning buzzers, new virus protection. Haven't had that happen, so just chalk it up to the angelic conflict. Okay, where were we? Back in, let me find that. There we are. Okay. So you have your uh, major center at Antioch, major center at Alexandria, North uh, Egypt, uh, Jerusalem is sort of an honorific because Jerusalem, by the uh, time after uh, 
8070 becomes less and less significant as a population center. You also have a major center in Constantinople, which later becomes the capital of the uh, Roman Empire and then later the capital of the Byzantine Empire. And then you have, of course, Rome itself. What's interesting from church history is the church in Antioch tends to be very orthodox. When you have your major controversies over the hypostatic union and the deity of Christ in the 3rd and 4th century, Antioch takes a strong historical, rational, biblical approach, and the Alexandrians are the ones who are out in mystical la-la land in their... um, uh, allegorical and spiritualizing of the scripture, the allegorical interpretation. So this gives you a little bit of a background on Antioch. This is a significant city. Now, of those who are mentioned, uh, Barnabas is well known. He's We've already talked about Barnabas to some degree. He is Jewish. He's a Levite. He is from Cyprus. He We don't know if he was born there or if he left uh Judea to go to Cyprus and um, and then came back to Jerusalem. He is an uncle to John Mark, and he has a reputation as being one who encouraged others in their Christian life. That's his focal point. Second person mentioned is Simeon Niger. The combination of names indicates that he's Jewish, but he is uh, African. He is from North Africa. Uh, and many think that he made this, I tried to identify him with Simon of Cyrene, but there's really not any evidence to support that, and we don't know anything else about him except uh, he seemed to have been dark-skinned. Then there's Lucius of Cyrene, who is from Cyrene. Cyrene was a colony of, of Rome, and so it was. Uh, they had sent many Romans there to colonize and establish it. Latin was the primary language in Cyrene, and it had a, a, a strong commercial base in North Africa. Uh, then you have Menean mentioned. That's the uh, Greek form of the Hebrew name Menachem, just as you have Menachem Begin, who was a recent uh, prime minister of of uh, Israel. So his Hebrew name was Menachem, and he is very well connected politically. He was brought up in the home of with Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great and the uncle of Herod Agrippa I, whom we read about in chapter 12 and who died in chapter 12. Herod Antipas was the uh, ruler of Judea at the time of the trials of, of Christ, all through that period from about fifteen, about five rather, uh, A.D. up through the time of Christ, Herod uh, Agrippa, or excuse me, Herod Antipas was the uh, primary ruler, also known as Herod the Fox, and so Menean was very well connected uh, politically, but he had become a believer and had associated himself moved to Antioch and associated himself with the um, rulers there. We come to Acts 13.2, and we read, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said. Now, there's three things there that are interesting to pay attention to. First of all, what does it mean that they ministered to the Lord? Second, the fasting. And third, the how did the Holy Spirit say this? 
and the Holy Spirit said, and here we have a an indication of verbal revelation. And remember, these men are said to be prophets and teachers. A prophet was, we must understand the word prophet in its Old Testament background. If all you knew was the Old Testament and somebody came along after the day of Pentecost and said they were a prophet, you're going to understand that within its Old Testament context. The reason I point that out is that today we have a number of people who try to interpret the New Testament gift of prophet in some other vein than that of its historical foundation in the Old Testament. They will often say that a preaching is the role of a prophet. Now, the role of a prophet was to disclose divine revelation. Being a prophet had nothing to do with the form of address, his rhetorical style, or anything else. He was, he was one who was responsible for giving divine revelation, and a teacher was one who explained a divine revelation and gave instruction as to how to understand it and how to apply it. And so these men are all called prophets and teachers. We don't know if some were prophets, some were teachers. If all of them had both gifts, it's not indicated. The both nouns are uh, without an article in the Greek, which doesn't give us any help. And so they are just a, a group of prophets and teachers. So one of them, through the gift of prophecy, is given uh, new revelation, specific direct revelation from the Holy Spirit to separate out Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And this shows an important role of the Holy Spirit here that the Holy Spirit is the one who called them in conjunction with uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, especially with the Apostle Paul at the time that uh, Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and outlined his mission as an apostle to the Gentiles. It also shows the personality of God, the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit communicates. Now, that's not a doctrine that's fought over today, but a hundred years ago, that was a doctrine that was fought over today. People, uh, liberals, theologians, try to uh, deny the Trinity and argued that the Holy Spirit was just a force or an expression of God the Father, wasn't a separate person. But the fact that the Holy Spirit speaks, the Holy Spirit can be grieved and quenched, these are all related to things that, that show his personality, that he is a person. So back to the beginning, we see these two phrases, they ministered to the Lord and fasted. Now, what in the world do these terms mean? Well, the phrase minister to the Lord is a phrase that is used in whole or part many times in the Old Testament. <clears throat> it's used in the Torah for the service of priests and Levites in the temple. And so we have various examples where just talking about Aaron and the priest ministering in the temple, Exodus 28.35 uh, that Aaron uh, ministered in the temple, Exodus 28, 43. Uh, when Aaron and his sons come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. So you have that phrase, minister in the holy place, which is also a circumlocution or another way of saying uh, ministering before the Lord. But you do have that stated in passages like Exodus 30, verse 20 where we read when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, 
to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. So ministry to the Lord is further expanded in that verse, showing us that it is uh, was was worked out through making the sacrifices and the offerings. And so ministry before the Lord had to do with fulfilling the divine role for their uh, their their position. Exodus 35, 19 said that they would wear the garments of ministry for ministry in the holy place to minister as priests. So this idea of ministry before the Lord indicates that their role in the worship of the congregation. So Exodus, I mean, excuse me, Acts uh, 13.2 says, as they ministered to the Lord. So they were uh, in a role where they were ministering the word. They were uh, probably in the meeting of the, of the church in Antioch. And in the midst of this, uh, the Holy Spirit communicates through one of the prophets this new directive to separate out Barnabas and Saul. But they're ministering to the Lord, which would also include prayer, and fasted. Now, fasting is one of those doctrines that, as I pointed out in the introduction, has become popular and is often distorted and misused today and not very well understood. We're not talking about fasting for weight loss purposes. We're not talking about fasting for health purposes. We're talking about fasting within a religious context and with and related to one's uh, spiritual life. Now, we all come out of a background where very little has ever been said about fasting. If you come out of some backgrounds, there's a lot said about fasting. It seems like every other week some churches are calling people to fast and pray for one thing or another. And so we need to investigate what the Scripture says about fasting. So as we look at this, first of all, I recognize that contemporary practice has become increasingly popular as mystical spirituality spreads out among people. Mysticism grabs hold of people when there's very little biblical teaching and content. People substitute emotion and feeling for biblical truth. It's a lot easier to just say, well, God has impressed me to do X, Y, or Z, than to study the Word to determine what it is that God uh, expects of us. Uh, so as we drift more and more into forms of mysticism in modern evangelicalism, we see more and more what I call pop Christianity practices. They're popular with the uninformed masses, but they don't have anything to do with biblical uh, instruction. Second thing that we must recognize is that the Bible neither condemns nor commands fasting. It recognizes its legitimacy and in several places warns against excesses and misapplication, but it never prohibits it. It never says it's a wrong practice, but it never commands it either. It recognizes it, therefore, as something that is legitimate, but we have to understand it within its original historical and cultural context if we're going to properly uh, un properly uh, understand it and seek application. 
Third point is that there are 43 instances of fasting recorded in the Old Testament. Now, not all of those are fasting by believers for a positive thing. There are pagans who fast. There's others. Ahab fasted. Uh, there's other examples of fasting that are not uh, on, on the, from a someone who is a believer seeking um, seeking forgiveness from God or seeking answer to prayer. But there are 43 instances in the Old Testament and 15 in the New Testament. So it's mentioned many times. It's mentioned in historical narrative as an observation of what people did. And always remember that. The Bible is filled with books that are historical narrative. They're telling us what people did. But telling us what they did is not telling us what we should do, that we should do the same thing. It's descriptive rather than prescriptive. It's describing what they did, for example, and Acts is filled with this, describing things that happened in the early church, but it is not saying that these things should be normal in, in the church age, but they did happen at that early stage. It's always important to understand the key words that we deal with, and it's pretty simple uh, when we look at this doctrine in the both the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament, the Greek words, the, the verb is som, and the noun is sum, and it simply means to fast and to go without eating. The, the Greek form is uh, nestuo, and uh, for the verb, and nesteia and nestis for the adjective and the noun, and it simply means not to eat. And so it's a very simple meaning. There's nothing real sophisticated to do in terms of word studies. It just means that for a period of time and for a religious purpose, usually, people refrained from eating. Now, that gives us four points for kind of a basic orientation. Now let's look at some of the observations from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament... Fasting seems to be related to the idea of humbling oneself before the Lord. It is translated by the New King James Version as afflicting oneself or afflicting one's soul, hina uh, nefesh, to afflict oneself. And it referred to a ritual where fasting played a part as one humbled oneself under the hand of God, mentioned in a number of different passages. I think it's important to take a look at these. Leviticus uh, chapter 16 is a passage dealing with the Yom Kippur, the ritual of Yom Kippur, and um, says, This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month. You shall humble your souls. New King James, if you're looking at your New King James Bible, says afflict yourself. So there's what's the relation between afflicting yourself and humbling yourself? Those seems to seem to us as quite different ideas. The basic uh, meaning of this word anad that is used here for humble or afflict is the idea of forcing someone to submit. You've heard me use terms as I did on Sunday morning where we talked about uh, enforced humility. That's what this is. This is enforced humility to afflict oneself or to force submission on someone. 
and that's the foundational meaning. Uh, one dictionary says that in the uh, peel, which is the intensified uh, stem in the Hebrew, it means to punish or to inflict pain upon someone. Uh, the verb has the idea of putting someone in a humble or lowly uh, position. It is never said of God, but it is said of numerous people. It's used in a number of ways. For example, it describes uh, the discomfort that Sarah inflicted upon Hagar in Genesis 16.6. It talks about what the lawless do to the law-abiding, defenseless people in Exodus 22.22. Uh, 22. It talks about the pain that was afflicted upon Joseph's ankles when he was in chains. So the word has a, a range of meanings, but when it comes to a spiritual context, it talks about the uh, adversity or affliction that God brings into people's lives to uh, cause them to turn to him and to uh, submit to his authority. And so this is the primary way in which this is uh, used in a number of uh, significant passages. So in Leviticus 16.29, with the description on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, the people were commanded to afflict themselves or to humble themselves, to submit to the authority of God. And the way they did that was to not do any work, either the native-born Jew or the alien, the immigrant, not the illegal immigrant, just the non-Jew who was living in the land uh, who lived with them. We have other examples uh, later on in um, the Old Testament of the fact that fasting really was just a superficial ritual that didn't have any impact on their relationship with God whatsoever. In Isaiah 53, the people say, why have we fasted? They're crying out to God. Why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? Now, since we've been studying parallelism, poetic parallelism on Sunday morning, you see that there's a synonymous parallelism in those first two lines. In fact, most of uh, Hebrew poetry, I mean Hebrew prophecy in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Daniel, uh, much of the prophecy is written in a poetic form. So we have these two lines that are synonymous with one another. Why have we fasted? And why have we humbled ourselves? So we see that fasting in this context is related to humbling oneself or submitting to the authority of God. So the two are tied together. Uh, why have we humbled ourselves? And you don't notice. Behold, on the day of your fast, uh, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. And I'm not going to go into the rest of the verse. Psalm 35, 13, David says, But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting. So one way in which uh, in the Old Testament they showed that they were submitting to God in humility was through fasting, was not eating. To get a definition of fasting is a sixth point. To fast is basically to abstain for a limited period of time from any kind of food. Not having a fruit fast or a meat fast or a, caf or a, you know, a caffeine fast or any of these other things that people do today uh, to try to get around it. Uh, this is a fast where you did not eat at all for a limited period of time. 
Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights when he was up on Mount Sinai. That's the first mention of a fast in Scripture. It doesn't use the word, but it said he abstained from eating and drinking for 40 days and 40 nights. Then Jesus also fasted in the wilderness. He ne- Jesus never condemns this. Oh, that's just an Old Testament practice that's irrelevant. That never happens. Now, a lot of times people from our background go, well, wait a minute. We've never been taught this as something we should do. Well, that's because the Bible never says it's something you should do. And neither does it say it's something you shouldn't do. It just is a recognized practice. And if you wish to do it, there are certain regulations for how that should be. Now, uh, there's a human viewpoint concept that predominates numerous cultures, and that is always the idea that uh, of asceticism, that if we give up something, that somehow that impresses God, it motivates him to do something for us, and we're able to bargain with him, get a little leverage with him, because we're not eating. I always thought that was odd. Remember back during the Vietnam War, there'd be these people like Dick Gregory who would go out and go on a a starvation fast or starvation protest. Well, who cares? You're going to go starve yourself to death, and you're going to, that's going to make me change my mind. You want to go hurt yourself? I'm not. I don't care. Uh, it always seemed ridiculous that, that people would do something like that. They think awful highly of themselves that somehow they're going to inflict. Uh, pain and discomfort upon themselves, and that's going to cause somebody else to change their mind and to take another course. That's a uh, that's extreme narcissism, in my view. So we have um, uh, that's all, but that kind of thing is always present in human viewpoint and pagan cultures. In the ancient world, there was a lot of superstition. They believed in many gods and goddesses, and they believed in active. Uh, presence of demons, and they believed that fasting was a way to keep free from any sort of demonic uh, possession or demonic influence. And so they mixed fasting with various forms of magic and incantations and drugs. Uh, The Greek word for drugs was pharmakeia, which had to do with various forms of hallucinogenic drugs that were used in these kinds of religious uh, rituals and for uh, religious purposes. So fasting was mixed into this kind of uh, pagan context where people could uh, refrain from eating and this would somehow uh, impress God. That is not the biblical view. In fact, that is rejected in the biblical view. So what I want to do is just go through some passages in the Scripture so that we can see the context of some of these events of fasting. So the first one mentioned is in Exodus chapter 34. So just turn with me back to Exodus, uh, if you will, to Exodus 34. This is in the last part of Exodus when we're uh, looking at the uh, revelation related to uh, the the uh, tabernacle and construction of the tabernacle, the giving of the law, the renewal of the covenant, all these things. And in uh, Exodus chapter 34, we have the uh, uh, second giving of the law to Moses after he had broken the tablets due to the people's uh, idolatrous rebellion with the golden calf earlier. And so the Lord is uh, <clears throat> told uh, tells Moses to cut two tablets, and we go through that all of that episode. And then there's just, there's a covenant renewal ceremony. And then we come down to the last part of that. 
and its description related to the uh, Passover, and starting in verse 25, and the uh, and the feast of first fruits in verse 26, and then verse 27. The Lord said to Moses, "Write these words, for according to the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel." So this is the Mosaic covenant. So he was there. This is Moses up on Mount Sinai. He was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Now, he didn't do that to manipulate God to appear to him. He doesn't do that to get God to some, to give him the covenant with Israel. He's not up there refraining from eating and drinking because he's trying to get something from God. He's up there not eating and drinking because of the seriousness of the circumstances, and that is such a mundane activity when you're in the presence of God Nothing else mattered but being in the presence of God, and so he probably gave no thought to eating or drinking. And so this is the first example of a fast in Scripture. Now, the next example comes in Judges chapter 20. That's all there is. You have the whole Torah, all of the instruction that's given in the Mosaic Law, and there's no command and no instruction related to fasting whatsoever. But Moses did it, so that's the first example not because it made him more spiritual, gave him greater fellowship or anything, but because he had, he was in the presence of God, he didn't give a thought to these other things. And that's really the core idea in I see in fasting is that some circumstance or event is so overwhelming that that we don't just give thought at all to, to eating or drinking or the normal events of life. We're just totally consumed in our thinking with the circumstance or the situation. In Judges chapter 20, we have a situation related to the nation uh, of Israel. This is uh, two books after the close of the Pentateuch. Judges 20, near the end of, of the book of Judges, verse 26. And this is during the... Um, in the book, this is part of one of the appendices talking about the impact of the carnality among the people. Remember, the theme of Judges is there was no God in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And in this chapter, we see a rebellion that takes place because of the carnality of the tribe of Benjamin. It almost led to the absolute annihilation of the tribe of, of Benjamin. And because of all that happened, because of this war, we see that... Um, uh, the Benjamites uh, killed 22,000 Israelites in verse 21. 22,000 is a huge death toll. Then in verse 25, Benjamin went out against them from Gibeah on the second day, from Gibeah on the second day, and cut down to the ground 18,000 more of the children of Israel. So this is now um, 40,000 Israelites, uh, men, warriors, who have been uh, killed by the Benjamites. So we have this horrible civil war taking place within the tribes of Israel. And then we come to verse 26. Then all the children of Israel, that is all the people, went up and came to the house of God and wept. They went up to Shiloh, Shiloh in the Hebrew, went up to Shiloh, which is, and they've discovered this. I have some pictures. I didn't have them to show tonight, but uh, we went there this last summer. It's in Samaria. It's in what they call area... 
Area A, which is under uh, Israeli control, and it's an extremely rugged terrain. So if you go to the hill country out around Fredericksburg or any of those areas and you see the ruggedness of the hill, it's a little more rugged than that, but the terrain looks very similar. And so you're standing there and you can't find a level place to stand because everything's up and down. And there's one place where they've got a uh, tremendous archaeological dig and they're fairly certain that this is where the ark was located. And the reason is it's the only flat spot around number one, but the flat spot precisely marks the dimensions of the tabernacle. So if that wasn't where the tabernacle was, then who, who would be able to figure that out? So the children of Israel go to the house of God, to the tabernacle, and they weep. They're expressing legitimate emotional sorrow over the fact that 40,000 of their best warriors have been slaughtered by the Benjamites. And they've been out there uh, on their own, not really trusting God, and now they're turning to God, as we often do after everything that we've tried has gone wrong. And they go to the house of God, they weep, and they sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. Now, they're not fasting to try, to try to impress God. They're fasting because they are so overwhelmed with grief that they don't have the, any desire to eat. They have no appetite. They're not fasting as a mechanism to impress God and to manipulate him into answering their prayer. They're fasting because they don't want to eat. They are overwhelmed. And if you've ever gone through a situation where you've lost a loved one, and you're grieving, you really don't have an appetite. You don't want to eat. So that plays a major part in this, and they don't have the time to go out and do everything necessary to prepare a meal. They're totally focused on on appealing to God to intervene in their lives. So they fasted that day until evening, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 27, So the children of Israel inquired of the Lord, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, he's the high priest, uh, Pinchas in the Hebrew. That's where if you've been around, uh, been in Mexico, you'll hear that name, Pinchas, and that is the uh, actual Hebrew pronunciation. We've anglicized it to Phinehas, but Pinchas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, stood before it in those days saying, Shall I yet again go out to battle against the children of my brother, Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up for tomorrow, for tomorrow I will deliver them into your hand. And so the fasting is part of the prayer. It is a sign that they are humbling themselves under the authority of God and submitting to Him, but it is not a tool of manipulation to get God to answer, uh, to answer their prayers. We see another example in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6. Uh, which is a, uh, as they gather together at uh, Mizpah, and there again they're coming before the Lord. They are uh, confessing their sins, and this is uh, after uh, the ark has been returned to, I- to Israel, and uh, it's now been taken uh, t- from uh, Kiriath-Jerim and brought, taken to the house uh, of, of Abinadab. And in 1 Samuel 7, 6, uh, 
we're told the ark stayed there, and then Samuel addresses the people and challenges them to turn back, shuv, to return to the Lord with all your hearts, and to put away the foreign gods, the, the idols in their household, the foreign gods, the asteroids among them, prepare your hearts for the Lord. Serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. Then the Lord said, Gather them to Mizpah, which is a place of covenant renewal. I'll pray to the Lord for you. And they gathered at Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord as a uh, drink offering. They fasted that day. Why? Because they're overwhelmed by their circumstances and by the fear of divine discipline and judgment. And so hunger is not an issue. Eating is not an issue. They go without food to focus on the Lord, and they confess their sin. So here we see that fasting was related to uh, confession of sin. We see it related to sorrow at the end of 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel 31, uh, 13. This is uh, after uh, Saul and uh, Jonathan have, uh, Saul killed himself, fell on his sword, Solemn, uh, Jonathan died in battle, and so the people have mourned the people from uh, um, have taken from um, uh, have come and taken their bodies and hung them up to show their victory, beheaded them, hung them up on the wall, and then the people um, from Jabesh Gilead across the Jordan heard what had taken place. And so this is dishonorable to the bodies of Saul and Jonathan. And they came, it's about maybe uh, 20 miles. All the valiant men rose and traveled all night, took the body of Saul and bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to uh, Jabesh and burned them there. So this is one example of cremation in the scripture. You may not know it, but among some uh, Christian theologians, they want to build a case that cremation is not uh, really legitimate for believers because we honor the body. I reject that argument, but I wanted to at least mention that uh, at some point. Here is an example of uh, godly Jews burning or cremating the bodies of uh, Saul and Jonathan. And they took their bones, buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and then they fasted seven days. They're in grief, so they are expressing that uh, through fasting. In 1 Samuel 1.12, we see uh, the same thing being restated. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. This is when David and his court heard about, uh, or David and his mighty men heard about uh, the death of Saul and Jonathan. Then we get over into the New Testament, and we get to... Uh, passages like the one we're studying in Acts 13, and then next in the next chapter in Acts 14, uh, when Paul and Barnabas are traveling back through these towns where they had uh, established congregations, they're appointing leaders, helping them structure their congregations, and they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting. They commended them to the Lord in whom they believed. So it's legitimate. It's not condemned. But it's not, neither is it mandated. Now, there are some, um, there are a couple of problems that I want to get into because they're related to textual problems. And I'm going to wait and start here next week because we're just about out of time 
and I want to set this up a little bit, but there's about three or four key passages that where the King James reads differently from the New American Standard, and we need to take a little bit of time to look at that. One of those is in Matthew 17, uh, 21, where uh, Jesus says that uh, the disciples come and they can't cast a demon out, and, they, and Jesus says, well, this one comes out with... Uh, prayer and fasting, uh, Matthew seventeen twenty one, Mark nine twenty nine, and what's interesting is, in both contexts, either the whole sentence, this one comes out by prayer and fasting, is omitted, or uh, the fasting is omitted. They're omitted in the same two ancient documents from uh, from Egypt, uh, Codex Sinaiticus and um, and Codex uh, Alexandrinus. And so, but the other manuscripts, the majority text uh, and others uh, support that reading that fasting was there. And that's because there's this, I'll just, this is enough to cover it. That's because in the context of that culture, as we've seen in the Old Testament, prayer and fasting, when we were appealing to God about something, went hand in hand. It was just assumed you're too you're too focused on the task at hand to be uh, distracted by everything needed to prepare a meal. And so it's not some mystical, magical manipulation of God. Uh, Matthew 17.21 is parallel to Mark 9.29 and Acts 10.30. In the New King James, it says Cornelius was fasting, but in the New American Standard, it says that Cornelius was praying. And I think that the uh, better reading is in the New King James. But the Lord legitimizes fasting, for example, in Matthew 4, verse 2, when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. There's no condemnation of it. But he does condemn the way the Pharisees practiced it. In Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about, he's condemning their way of performing righteous deeds, as seen in the first verse of the chapter. And then he addresses it in terms of giving and, and charitable events, charitable activities and other things. And then in verse 16 he says, Moreover, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. In other words, they're putting a show on, but they're not really fasting. They've got a Hershey's bar in their hip pocket. They... Um, Surely I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you fast, anoint your head. And that basically meant go take a shower, clean up, don't walk around uh, making a show of the fact that you're fasting. Nobody should know. It's between you and God. Uh, but you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It's between you and the Lord and nobody else. In fact, if you want to spoil the whole effect, go tell somebody you're fasting and because it just you're bragging on being spiritual. So fasting was something that was common to the Pharisaical practice, but it was all distorted, and uh, Jesus condemned that. So basically, in summary, this act of prayer and fasting is common. It's culture. It's got a long tradition back to the Old Testament. Remember, it's not mandated, neither is it condemned, it's supposed to be done completely in privacy between you and the Lord. If you fast, it's nobody else's business. Nobody else needs to know about it. It doesn't make you any more spiritual or less spiritual. In fact, the whole focus in fasting was that you were just so consumed with the problem that you didn't have time to eat or drink. And for most of us, 
that doesn't really play out in a modern context. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to think through some of the uh, things that are taught and described in Scripture and come to understand that that our, our relationship with you is based on grace. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on jumping through certain hoops or trying to manipulate you in certain ways, but it's based on the ba- principle that Jesus Christ uh, paid the full price for our sins on the cross, that you've given us everything related to our spiritual life, uh, every spiritual blessing from the moment that we were saved, from that first instant we trusted in Christ as Savior. And, Father, we pray that we might be challenged, though, as we read these passages on the seriousness with which these people, these heroes of the faith, took their prayer life and showing in some tangible way that they were submitted to your authority. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.